This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Stan Holland, Director of the Cardiovascular Service Line at Rockingham Memorial Hospital in Harrisburg, Virginia. Stan, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Before we dive into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yes, ma'am. Uh, it's been my joy to work in the healthcare field for now for almost 45 years, the last 37 in leadership. I uh, started out as a registered respiratory therapist, frontline uh, in the ICU and the ER, and then progressed into various levels of leadership in the respiratory department and pulmonary function, pulmonary diagnostics, sleep lab, and then along the way started kind of stepping it up and was interim director of our emergency department um, our periop area, and then kind of came back home to the Heart and Vascular Center here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. We're a 240-bed hospital, and we've been really blessed in the last, we just found out we're in the top 100 for IBM Watson for community hospitals. So it's a great, it's a great place to work. We've got a great team here. The cardiovascular team has been recognized twice in the last uh, once each the last two years is the top 10 and the top 20 of the cardiovascular hospitals by IBM Watson. So we've got some great folks working here that really care about the patients. And I believe we're really doing some good stuff for our patients. Fantastic. Well, you know, I'm really excited to connect with you today. And I'm wondering, what are your top priorities and how do you see them evolving over the next 12 months or so? I appreciate that. I mean, let's first frame the conversation and frame that. The last 15 months, have there's not a healthcare person in this country or in the world, really, that hasn't really experienced a lot of turmoil and change and stress because, you know, just a few things to wrap your arms around. Over 800, 580,000 people have died in the U.S. from COVID. 3,600 of those are frontline healthcare workers, and that includes 32% of nurses, 17% of that number have been doctors. Over a million and a half jobs have been lost. So it's been a traumatic time. Um, but we've really got to keep our focus and keep our eye on the ball. And one of the number one things we've had to do is help our staff keep their guard up. The vast majority of them have had vaccinations. Um, there's a lot of COVID fatigue going on, but reminding them when they're rushing into an emergency that they still have to take those precautions um, and make sure that they're protecting themselves and in, in doing so, protecting their coworkers and their family members. Um, the second thing we're really trying to work on is, you know, when you do something for 15 months and when you start it, when everybody is scared and there's no vaccine and there's a lot of unknowns, you start putting things in place that really did make sense back then. But now as the vaccination rates continue to climb, the number of COVID cases go down, it's time to maybe start backing off on some of those things. But doing that safely, um, one of the things is our visitor restrictions. Um, also, still we're requiring COVID test pre-procedures that are an aerosolized generating procedure. But if people have been vaccinated, why are we doing that? I mean, we're sending mixed signals to the public about are we really safe now? I will say one thing we got very well, done very well during this, is we really protected the end-of-life scenario where we made sure family members that were protected but could be with their family members when they passed. And again, 
educating our public is another big thing. There is tremendous amount of just blatant disinformation. Everybody that's on Facebook thinks they're an expert, and sadly, none of them are. And it's just wrong information. So taking the time to build relationships with our public when we're doing the vaccination clinics, volunteering to just build relationships and having those conversations to explain to people. Um, And the last thing, we have made a lot of very traumatic improvements um, because we're in kind of that mode, we have to do it. Things like our same-day discharges have gone up dramatically. The use of telehealth, uh, just to mention a few. And we've got to be careful. It's kind of like a rubber band. It wants to go back to the original state. But we, we've not – I don't want to lose that forward momentum because one of the things I challenged our team with, uh, not just to keep themselves safe, but think of things that we can change in this last 15 months. And uh, we won't have to go through the normal red tape process. We can just work through changing them. And that became a good focus for them. So I don't want us to lose that kind of very positive momentum we have made here and across the country. A lot of, a lot of good things have, have happened and will continue to happen as a, as a fruit of all this hard work that's been put in. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. And, you know, really looking at where good changes have been able to occur, I think it is a great way to go about things. Now, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're still facing today? I know you talked a little bit about some of the um, disinformation and, and other COVID protocols that, you know, may not be 100% necessary anymore. Are there any other things that are really um, making it challenging for you in the cardiovascular service line to, to really move forward? Well, one of the biggest things that's on my heart and on all of our leaders' hearts is that our, our team of frontline nurses and our rest and our rehab, stress tests, echo, our cath lab, EP, our, all those areas, they all got deployed twice out to the front lines in the CCU and the ER and the critical and the progressive care units where they were front line with all the COVID patients. And it really was a an eye opener for them. They were there because they wanted to be there with their 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 sisters in nursing and helping them. But you know, they this was intense. And there's a lot of mental trauma, I believe, with our not just our nurses, but the CCU nurses and the ER nurses. Um, there's a lot of articles popping up about post-traumatic stress syndrome. There was an article in the Washington Post just last week about 30% of people leaving the healthcare field. And we're starting to see the nurses from CCU and PCU wanting to go to something that's not quite as intense. So, you know, this is on top of already having nursing shortages. Um, with a lot of older folks getting ready to retire and stuff, and you put this on top of it, it just makes that harder. Um, And part of the problem with this is just the folks that are in it realizing they're having a problem Um, and people just coming along beside them to have relationships to help them work through that. So that's a a huge deal. And I do think another thing is the long-term care of these COVID patients, the long haulers is the name you're hearing out there, this is a multiple system disease. I mean, it affects the cells in the heart. It affects the blood vessels and the lungs. It affects the blood vessels in the brain. Um, it affects the kidneys. I mean, it really is going to take a multidisciplinary group of, of 
teammates and physicians to really manage this patient. We've never had to do this in a long time. A lot of these patients are not going to go away. Um, but again, we've got to figure that out. And I mentioned earlier the loss of jobs, but there's been also been a lot of hospitals to close or the credit ratings have dropped dramatically. So this is putting a huge economic and financial strain on the healthcare system. One source quoted a $200 billion loss last year across the system. So with that increasing pressure, trying to find that happy medium because standalone hospitals aren't a whole aren't in the norm anymore. So as systems try to come together to reduce costs with these economic pressures on them, um, it, it just it's creating those kind of changes in the field. Especially the rural hospitals are being hit hard. But as we become more and more with bigger systems, the biggest thing is we can't lose the value of the individual nurse or doctor or respiratory therapist, um, because everybody contributes to this team. Although you might be part of a bigger family now, you still have to be valued and appreciated for your contribution. So there's a lot of things pulling right now in the healthcare industry. And I think it's going to be a long time before we settle out. Um, we're starting to see procedural volumes starting to come back. That's very encouraging. But it's not like it's just going to come back and nothing's ever happened. I think it will be a while before we sort through all this and just in a, an awareness that so much mental trauma has taken place. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. And, you know, really looking at a lot is um, has um, is facing the healthcare providers today, and they've been through so much in the past year already. Um, from your perspective, is there anything that, you know, you're doing um, – at Rockingham Memorial Hospital or that you're seeing being done across the, the U.S. to kind of address some of these issues? Well, part of it is we're we're in another growth spurt in terms of volumes in the next six months, a year. Um, our structural heart program has just grown dramatically. Our open heart surgery program has done very well. Um, we're starting to get the test volumes back. We start to add a heart failure clinic um, cardio MEMS, which is a device that goes in the pulmonary artery and measures the um, pressures in the pulmonary artery to help you detect heart failure sooner. Um, we're starting to prepare to do work with mitral valves. Um, this is on top of a growing TAVR program. Um, just everything has been growing for us. We've added T-cars on the vascular side, pulmonary embolus lysis. Uh, we're just growing Again, and, and that's a good thing to have. Uh, one of the biggest areas that's growing is our cardiac imaging. Um, the advancement in technology and imaging for cardiac, uh, cardiac CTs of the coronary arteries, using that in the ER instead of stress test, um, looking at and, and growing our cardiac MRIs and CTs, and we're really starting to explore cardiac PET. Um, so that that is a big area of growth, the imaging area. So what I see is just like a few years ago, growing that relationship between our structural heart cardiologists, the, those guys and our CTS surgeons, that in the field is maturing where they're actually having fellowships together in the training program. But now growing the relationship between the cardiac imaging physicians, in addition to that, the regular radiologists that 
read the procedures, um, growing those relationships together so that they understand how they can help out each other. At the same time, we have to work through that delicately because, you know, these types of things do influence people's income. So that, that throws another dimension into it. But overall, we're blessed to have people that really care about the patient and they're put, keeping that patient center and, you know, most important. But there's a lot of push and pull in these growth spurts. I mean, just like when our children have growth spurts, there's some pain involved with that, but it's good in the long run. Absolutely. Got it. I think that's really a great point and exciting to hear that there are so many growth areas and so much potential in that space. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share three pieces of advice that you have for emerging leaders today? Well, again, kind of being the guy who's done this a while and absolutely is blessed. And I look back on it and the the challenges, everything has been worth it. Um, It has been a blessing beyond I could ever imagine, and I am grateful for all the opportunities. At the same time, I want us to never, ever forget it's about the patient and their family. That is the most important thing. They put a sacred trust in our hands when they come in the hospital at a time when they are absolutely scared to death. And I believe those, we have to honor that sacred trust. It's almost like a divine appointment that we have there to meet their needs, to understand them, to support their families. Um, and that's not just with the patients and families, with each other. It's about relationships. I mean, we've got to constantly work at caring for each other and supporting each other. Because if we're not doing that, we won't give the absolute best care to that patient that we can do. Um, I watch our team working and I'm just amazed at times how they know each other and they care about each other and they're always there for each other. And that's reflected when they take care of the patient. At the end of the day, the patient's why we're here. We need to treat every patient as if it's my mom, my dad, your mom, your dad, because it's somebody's mom and dad. They're not a number. They're not just another medical record their person, and that's something we can never get away from, despite the fact we have incredible amounts of technology these days. Stan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. I appreciate it, too. If there's anything else we can do, let us know, and thank you.